Listener Production. Deborah Francis-White is an Australian-born, London-based writer and comedian who is best known for her award-winning podcast, The Guilty Feminist. You'll hear me in this interview mention that it has been downloaded 90 million times in five years. Francis White very quickly corrects me and says it's now 100 million in six years. The Guilty Feminist is less of a podcast and more of a feminist church. It's recorded live in front of adoring audiences all over the world and it's a unique mix of activism, feminism, humour and warmth. Deborah Francis-White herself is a force to be reckoned with. Loud and proud, dedicated and decisive, she moves seamlessly between discussing the implications of overturning Roe v Wade and confessing that she abandoned the women's marches when Donald Trump was elected to use the bathroom in a department store and became distracted by face creams. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. It is my pleasure to have you here. In a moment, Bron is jumping into the hot seat and we will have The Weekend List for you, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, the main game today is Deborah Francis White, host of The Guilty Feminist podcast and movement. You don't want to miss this one. Deborah Francis White, welcome to the weekend briefing. It is a delight to see your face. It is an unqualified delight to be here, Jam. We are very happy to have you back in Australia. I'm guessing it's been a minute. Two and a half years because of the global pandemonium. Now, those who are perhaps unfamiliar with you might not know from your accent, but you grew up in Australia. Do you still consider Australia? Do you still call Australia home, Deborah? Do I, I, you know, when I hear that song coming in on a Qantas plane, when I come in on a Qantas plane, I do well up. Uh, I, I read a lot of Ina Blyton as a child and I picked up the accent from the books. Uh, <laughs> left as a, so I was still, I went to uni in Britain and then didn't come back. So all my growing up life's been in the UK. And I am someone who picks up accents very quickly. Like if I'm in LA for a weekend, I'm like, oh my God. Like I, I'm like <laughs> talking to a friend and I suddenly become, on the phone, I suddenly become a valley girl. So all those years in Britain, I'm likely to have picked up the accent, but it comes and goes, Jam. It comes and hey, goes. Hey, look at that. You'll hear it every now and again. It's not, this is terrible now. This is this is the worst Australian accent anyone's ever done. This is the thing is I can't control it and I can't do it at will. I, when I try to do an Australian accent now, I sound like Kath and Kim, which is not accurate. That's not how I used to speak. I had a much milder Australian accent, more like this, something like this, I think. It's bad now. It's like a pom trying to do an Australian accent on Neighbours or something. (laughs) You have had absolutely phenomenal success over the course of the podcast. I was reading somewhere in some excellently prepared notes that you've had 90 million downloads in five years. We've had 100 million downloads now in six years. What? What? Someone yeah. update the notes. They are numbers so big you can't, you can no longer picture that many people in your head, right? Your mind's eye can't pull that off. Are you someone that can pause and, and appreciate that success and the scale of that success or is it more yeah, of a totally. plough on? I mean, that's, that's 100 million downloads. That doesn't mean that's 100 million individual listeners because people listen every week and, you know, there's now 300 episodes for them to listen to. Are you talking it down? Are you talking the number down? Don't talk the number I mean, down. It's very impressive. I'm a feminist but I'm going, oh, but it's not random. No, it's a lot of people. Don't get me wrong. It's a lot of people. And it's a lot of listens. And in a way, it's more impressive because 
you could get people to listen to anything once, but to get people to be loyal and come back yeah. over such a long period of time. And those who stuck with us over the pandemic, I'll, I'll forever be grateful for. Because a lot of people listened to podcasts less over the pandemic because they weren't commuting anymore. So they were in front of screens and they were able to watch Netflix. So, you know, we went through that whole period where everyone was watching Tiger King and that kind of thing and baking banana bread. And people were listening to podcasts less. And so, you know, people stuck with us and then, you know, you see it build up again. And now we're back out. We've seen people come out. We just did a big UK tour. And just having people in the audience, people grateful, people thirsty to come back out and be together and to be part of that movement again. And also just enjoying the comedy. It's a place to refuel. And you know what I was saying before about Australia is refueling now and and I think ready for a new chapter and ready to, with a new government, to make Australia a fairer place. You know, there are so many big issues in Australia that need addressing. Yes, you've got a Labour Prime Minister now, but, you know, you still have offshore detention centres for refugees. And, you know, that model impacts the world. I don't know if you've heard, but in the UK now... Oh, we're leaders. Yeah, that's what Priti Patel's planning on doing. My only hope is that she, well, she started doing it, sending refugees to Africa in an attempt to say, well, they can deal with it and we don't have to. And it's a way of deterring refugees from coming to the UK. That's something that's been modelled on Australia. And she said blatantly that's been modelled on Australia. Well, as far as I know, Manus is still operating and the new prime minister, the new government hasn't done anything about that yet. Is that the case? Yeah. And there are also still a large number of refugees who, while not living within the detention centre's walls on Nauru, are living in the community in Nauru. And you're talking about a community with you know, no access to fresh water that isn't shipped in. Right. And I was reading the story about how these, you know, Indigenous children, 14-year-olds who were in a detention centre, which both a SNAP inspection and a judge had said was inhumane, they were basically being treated like, you, in a way, you shouldn't treat dogs. So then this prison said, oh, we'll, you know, we'll spend millions of dollars up doing it up and changing it. But they haven't done that yet. And the kids, predictably, as the judge and the inspector predicted, just couldn't handle it anymore and they wrecked the place. And the response to that was not one of compassion saying, why are Indigenous children even imprisoned? We know how disenfranchised they are. But the response to that was to take them to a maximum security men's prison. Now, and they've said, oh, but we're keeping them separate from the men in a separate section. Yeah, but they've had to drive through the gates. How frightening must that be for those children? And why are they there? Why are they being taken to a, it's to scare them. It's to scare them. But it's already been established that, I mean, firstly, they should not be in prison. They should not be taken from their families. Indigenous people in this country have been treated in such an inhumane fashion. There's been a genocide. They should never have been in that position. But even in that context, they are in a juvenile detention centre that they should never, no child should be in a juvenile detention centre, in my opinion. But even in that judiciary system, that's been seen as it should be condemned. And so, you know, like there are massive problems that this government, we need to lobby this government to fix. Mm. We need to be telling them, hey, if you are going to be different, show us. And look, we've just come off the back of NAIDOT week and I think some really important conversations about constitutional recognition, but it was interesting in every NAIDOC event I attended, someone spoke about raising the age of criminality. And, I, you know, I have a seven-year-old and the fact that 
at 10 years old, a child in this country can be remanded in juvenile detention is like, I look at him and he's got very little control over himself. You know, yeah. how, how could you possibly have the, the mindset for criminality at, at 10? That's only three, mm-hmm. only three years away. And taking that child away from their parents, their home, their family, their community is definitely going to, if, if they have got uh, control issues, is definitely going to make those control issues much worse. We know that. We know what happens to the brain uh, when you isolate people. We know their brain is still developing. So that child is developing less empathy because they're not being shown any empathy and they're being isolated with other children who are also experiencing control issues, who are also being traumatized by being taken away from their family. We know the worst thing that can happen to a child is to be taken away from their secure attachments. That's the worst thing that can happen. And yet we take a child who's already obviously experiencing difficulties, who's already obviously disenfranchised, and we say, well, how about we make that much worse by taking them away? And then we put them in such horrifying facilities. And then we go, oh, now you've acted as we predicted you would by actually hurting yourself and and destroying the only environment you've got because you can't handle this any longer. Why don't we punish you further in a really traumatizing way? We've got to speak up for Indigenous communities, Indigenous children. If we don't, who's going to? And we need to hold this government to account and say, hey, you said you'd be different. Let's see it. One of the things you do so well, and we've just seen it demonstrated, is that you move almost seamlessly between comedy and politics. And I imagine a lot of your new audiences who are brought along by a friend who think they're going to see a comedy show will then go, oh, wow, I learned something today and I didn't, don't, that doesn't usually happen when I go and see comedy. It's great fun, but I don't necessarily walk away with a whole bunch of notes on what I need to do in my activist life. How do you think you make that work and how much of it is intentional and how much is it just what comes out for you when you're talking about what matters to you? Well, we front load the show with comedy. So we start with our I'm a feminist Barts, which are, you know, our confessions. So, you know, I'm a feminist Bart. Yesterday I landed at Sydney Airport, went to the carousel. My, I've got a really heavy suitcase because I'm here for five weeks on tour. And a man, a big, strong, burly man leaned forward as I went to get my suitcase as if to lift it off for me. And I was like, oh, thank you. And then he pulled back and went, oh, that's not mine. And I had oh. to do it as it was turning a corner. I was like, oh, bloody hell. And then I thought, if that man had just lifted my suitcase off without my permission, without asking, would you like me to do that? I would have been like, excuse me, sir, I can do this myself. And I just in that moment went, yeah, it would have been quite convenient though. Um, and then, you know, the driver who picked me up was a woman. And then I had to lift the suitcase. I was like, oh, no, no, you shouldn't do it. I had to lift the suitcase into the boot. And I was like, and it's not, listen, delighted to have a woman driver, delighted, hashtag representation. But I just think if there are going to be women drivers picking up from the airport, there should be a man who lifts the suitcase if it's very heavy for you. And I'm not suggesting those men are paid extra. I'm suggesting it's like jury duty that every man who's capable has to just do it for an afternoon a year. Uh, <laughs> these are just suggestions. So we, we top load our show with I'm a Feminist Bart with stand-up comedy you know, when I'm on tour here, I work with Aussie Comics. I'm with Celia Picola in Melbourne. I'm with Geraldine Hickey in Adelaide. Cal Wilson's doing a lot of the dates. And then we, wherever we are, we get local activist feminists on who are actually doing something in that community. And 
we change gears. And mm. some of it's really funny because activism's funny because, you know, the fight against injustice can be funny. Um, and But if we want to change gears into something that's serious or sad or we just go there and the audience just come with us and we often cry, we often get angry, it just feels like a refueling. I think the three things you need, somebody amazing taught me this once, a woman called Idle who used to run Turkey Amnesty International until she got arrested by Erdogan. She said, you need resistance, you need resilience, and you need joy. And she said, resilience is hard because you resist, you resist, you resist, you get exhausted. It's like, oh, now there's Roe versus Wade. Now there's this, now there's this, now there's this, now there's this. And it's always something. And so you need resilience. And she said, the thing that the guilty feminist has that a lot of groups don't have is joy. And she said, joy allows resilience because if it's a magnetic place where people get to refuel and they get to feel that joy, that's what gives you the resilience to resist again. And she said a lot of activist groups leave that out. The only tool in their box is anger and anger is a brilliant motivator, but it shouldn't be the only tool in your box. So it's a great place to come and feel the joy and feel energized and feel refueled. If you go back to the early days, if you had pitched the guilty feminist as a concept to a television network in the UK, how would they have reacted? Oh, they would have said, absolutely no. No, you can't have a show with feminists in the title. Yeah. Because, you know, it was the end of 2015. It was before the women's movement really started. It was like there were rumblings, but it was before Me Too. It was before Trump got in. It was before the women's marches. And absolutely. But I think we've seen such advances in the last five or six years, you know, and, and I definitely hit the zeitgeist beforehand because I was feeling that. I was feeling the edge of, I want to be involved in this, but I don't know if I'm good enough. I want to learn how to be better at this. I want to build muscle. I want to acknowledge what I don't know. I want to acknowledge my failings and, and understand, you know, the whole show is about, we don't have to be perfect to be a force for meaningful change. We've got hypocrisies, we've got insecurities, but let's laugh at them, exfoliate guilt before it becomes shame because shame is luggage that you have to carry. It weighs you down. It stops you doing stuff. If something is a problem, let's look at it. Let's put it on the table. Let's get rid of it. Let's build muscle. And I think what I was feeling, a lot of people were feeling. And what I wanted to say, a lot of people wanted to hear. Were you a kid who grew up where you talked about feminism at home over the kitchen table? Was this something you came to at university? When did feminism sort of creep into your life in a way that you were able to acknowledge it and say, yes, this is something I care about? I was always somebody who felt like I should speak up if there was injustice. I learned at high school how to fight for stuff. I remember we were studying music, but there was only six or seven of us in the class who wanted to study music. And so they didn't offer it at year 11 and year 12. And we went in and fought for it. And they said, well, we can't afford a whole teacher for six students. They said, you'd have to get 10 students to sign up. And then you would only get three contact hours a week. And then you just have to have study periods. And we said, fine, we'll find 10 students. And I think she thought, the headmistress thought we wouldn't do that. And we went off and we rounded up 10 people to do music. And then we said, great, give us your three contact hours a week. Anyway, once they hired a teacher, we ended up getting all of the periods. And I remember like fighting for that, deciding we wouldn't leave until we got what we wanted. And uh, I think understanding that you can ask for something and you can convince someone, you can persuade somebody and 
you can make your case and you can you can rally the troops. You know, it was a great thing to learn. But then my family became Jehovah's Witnesses when I was a teenager. I mean, that's really stoked my feminism because it's a very patriarchal religion. Yeah. It's all run by men. I really struggled even with the way women were treated in the Bible. Because I was very devout and quite high profile as a Jehovah's Witness, I kind of got away with saying some things that I shouldn't have said. I mean, I wouldn't say them in the kingdom hall. I wouldn't say them publicly, but you know, I'd mutter about things. And when I left, I was desperate to be a feminist and an active feminist. But it was, I went to university in 1997 and I thought, oh, the outside world away from the religion is going to be full of feminists. Absolutely not. It was all girl power and let it culture. Mm. And I remember talking about feminism in the JCR at my college at Oxford. And there was a real response that, well, we've got equality now and then you, you, you must be trying to get something extra. You're trying to claim that you've got experiencing unfairness you're not experiencing and you should just shut up and get on with that. And it was a long time before feminism came into the public imagination. Of course, there are always feminists fighting for things, but until it was something that I think women started discussing. I remember the shift. I remember it in... 2012, 2013, 2014, when I'd meet up with girlfriends for lunch. And instead of those sex in the city conversations where we were just talking about our own careers and our own love lives, we started talking about unfairness with things that we saw in the world. We, it's things that started coming up in the news, you know, and, and Hillary Clinton was about to be in the White House because the alternative seemed impossible. After that, I remember that tape coming out where Trump was caught on tape saying the worst horrible things. And I was like, well, that's it for him now. He can't get in because women won't vote for him. <laughs> but some of them did. To be fair, mostly white women voted for him anyway. And, you know, that's really, I think, ignited the women who were furious and just went, no, we just can't accept this anymore. Sometimes things have to get really bad before there's a a global pushback, a furious global pushback. And it's happening again with Roe versus Wade. Hmm. Jamila, I mean, we, we're going to see a revolution in America. Gosh, I hope we do. I watched some of the protests. I was on, I had COVID, so I stayed home from the protests here in Australia a couple of weeks ago, um, but was watching, you know, the pictures on the news and the the fear in the eyes of Australian women who I think despite the differences between laws across states, kind of accept that this is a right that they have, even if access is somewhat more difficult in regional areas, for example. But there was a, a newfound fear, like what happens there can happen here in, yeah. you know, a different legal mechanism, but that can be the result. No, oh, I grew up in Queensland and it was not legal in Queensland till 1986, I think. I think it was only taken out of the criminal code in Queensland a couple of years ago. But still in the criminal code in the UK. We're still fighting for that in the UK. Uh, I mean, in practice, you can get an abortion, but it has to be signed off by two doctors and they've got to say your mental state is such and yada, yada, yada. And that's just not great to have in the culture, even though practically, yes, you can have one. It shouldn't be criminalized. Those things matter because they seep into the consciousness. And especially with Roe versus Wade, America is often the emotional thermometer of the world. I think that's probably becoming less true as there's more mass shootings and more Supreme Court oddities that are taking that country back 50 years or more. You know, it emboldens. It emboldens. Immediately, a couple of UK MPs started saying, oh, well, yes, you know, it's not right to say that the 
you know, the rights of the the unborn child, yada, yada, yada. You know, it emboldens. And I was just in New Zealand and a friend of mine was saying she's a white woman and she was walking around um, a shop with her child who's Indigenous, half Indigenous. And she said this woman was, you know, spouting white supremacy at them. And she said, you know, it emboldens. And that's the thing about it. Exactly what I was saying about Priti Patel has been emboldened by Australia's policies with refugees. These things ping around the world. And it's like, well, hold on. If the Supreme Court in America is saying this, what's going to happen? Of course it emboldens people to come out and barricade abortion clinics in other countries. Of course it does. So, you know, it'll it'll be really interesting to see what's hap- what happens there because um, Biden's signing an executive order to override Roe versus Wade, but I think it's limited what he can do because he can't impose abortion clinics into Texas. So all he can say is doctors won't be criminalized if they do it, but he can't provide access in those states. So I think it's a it's a it's a thin end of the wedge, even with what he can do. And you know, if a Republican gets in next time, that executive order is is overturned. So, you know, we're really in dangerous waters there because the Supreme Court has said the next thing they're going to go after is uh, equal marriage. Can you imagine after all that fight? After all that work and all that celebration all that and all those fight. beautiful weddings. And that well, what happened last time in the, some of the states that uh, allowed equal marriage and then it got overturned. I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary, The Case Against Eight. If you haven't watched it, it's absolutely incredible. Um, it's the whole story of what happened in documentary form. But people just got a letter in the post going, you're not married anymore. Can you imagine? Wow. You're fully married. You've got kids. Your family all came to the wedding. Your picture's on the mantelpiece. You get a letter from the government going, no, that you're not. And that could happen again. It's just cruel. And the other thing they said they're going after, no word of a lie, they've explicitly said they're going after it, birth control, access to birth control. We are going into the United States of Gilead there. They're saying it shouldn't be an automatic right to have birth control. We know that the number one thing you can do for your population to be happy, a successful, resourced, is give access to birth control to women so that women and other people who have uteruses and the ability to carry a child have access, personal access, to say when they have that child and when they don't and how they have that child. That's the number one thing you can do, not just for women and people, other people who can carry children, but for your whole population to be happy and successful. And they're saying that shouldn't be an automatic right. Doctors should have to say, yes, you can have birth control. No, you can't. That's white supremacy going on. That's got to be that they worried that their population is not white enough anymore. I'm pretty sure that can be the only reason they're doing that apart from trying to control women because they misogynists. You know, that's really frightening. And if the Supreme Court do that, God knows what will happen to America, but it's not great for the rest of the world because it does embolden and you'll start to see other horrendous policies coming in around the world. So we've got to fight it. One of the things I observed watching and being part of discussions on online and in person over the last few weeks following the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade was women sharing their abortion stories, but often sharing, I would say almost universally sharing, quite extreme examples 
you know, talking mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, the, the rape of a 14-year-old girl being forced to go through that with that pregnancy or um, a woman uh, carrying a child where if she wasn't able to abort that fetus, it, there would be a danger to her own life. What wasn't being talked about was just 42-year-old mum of two kids who didn't want another one mm. and a 27-year-old professional young woman who hadn't found the right partner yet and had a one-night stand and doesn't want to carry that baby. Mm. Do you think it's fair to say that if we focus on the easier to argue moral arguments, we fail the majority of women who fit into the broad, the broader categories of just needing an abortion because I want one? I mean, I know that's definitely the push online from feminists and I absolutely get it. I am a pragmatist mm. and I do think that we need to hear both of those stories, all of those stories. There are some people who are saying, you're playing into the hands of the bad guys if you mention extreme examples. And I'm like, we need pragmatically to convince, you know, 70% of Americans think in some situations, uh, some or most situations, women should be able to have uh, abortions. But I think it's slightly less than half, think, in every situation. Yeah. So... If we want the maximum number of people to protest about the overturning of Roe versus Wade, then I think if those arguments are persuasive about not necessarily extreme examples of this, some of them are quite common. There are states which are now saying if there's been incest and they've been raped, that they shouldn't be able to have an abortion. I'm like, that does need addressing. And if that's a persuasive argument, I think we need to make it. But I think what we mustn't do is allow the pushback to be, okay, then we'll allow that, but not, as you say, a 22-year-old professional who's got a boyfriend but just doesn't want children. You know, someone might be married and doesn't want children and they're allowed to have an abortion. So I think we need to make all cases. I think I worry about telling people online, never mention... Mm teenagers because you know that's playing into their hands I'm like well no mention those as well because that's persuasive but just don't stop there yeah we need all hands on deck we need pragmatic hands on deck we need radical hands on deck different stories will persuade different people and we need everything we've got to throw at this honestly not all feminists will agree with me about that and I am all up for convergent thinking I uh, for divergent thinking rather I don't want to be in a situation where all feminists have to agree on everything all of the time It makes me nervous when we say, here's the one attitude you're allowed to have. I don't like it. I'm like, no, I hope I do disagree with other feminists because I don't believe any movement can move forward while we're all pretending to agree with each other on absolutely everything. One of the most interesting arguments is about IVF because I've been reading a lot about women who are very, very anti-abortion, who are very religious and very sure about right to life but their children were conceived with IVF and they've got four embryos frozen and they do not want any more children. And one woman that I was, I was just hearing about in a story, she's terrified that she's not going to be able to destroy those embryos because she doesn't want them to exist. She doesn't want someone else to carry her children. She doesn't want those eggs that she doesn't want fertilized in her. But she's very anti-abortion. And her friend was saying to her, can you not see it's exactly the same? That's an embryo. It's not a child. Doesn't know anything. 
It's not a baby. It's not a human being. It's a potential. What are we going to say? That or if, if somebody said, if you're in a burning building and you can only save a freezer with a thousand fertilized eggs in it or a real baby, you can only carry one of those down the steps, which one are you going to take? Because if all of those thousand frozen embryos are in fact human beings, you should take the fridge. But I think we all know no one would do that and mm. take the child. Mm. So, you know, this is an, it's an interesting moral question. And I think we need to be making all of these arguments because they're persuasive. And we need to let people think it through and get there. And we need enough of our population to say we won't be held to ransom like this. It's our body. If you don't want an abortion, don't have one. No one's making you have one. This is not state legislated abortions. So by all means, if you think life starts at conception, knock yourself out. But don't impose it on other people. Don't tell me I have to have a forced birth. I'm not in Gilead. It's not going to stand. Deborah Francis-White, thank you for your pragmatism, for bringing so many lessons to so many people, but doing it in a way that is fun and brings that joy that you spoke about earlier in the podcast. Thanks for being here in Australia. In a moment, everyone, I'm going to tell you all about where you can see Deborah and catch The Guilty Feminist. Thanks for being my guest. Thank you so much, Jamila. And please, everyone, come out because you need to refuel for the resistance and we need you there too. I don't think there are that many tickets left in any city, but there are tickets left and we want the house to be completely full, completely jubilant. You're going to have the night of your life. Don't miss it. We've got two shows in Canberra, but everywhere else we've only got one show. If you forget the dates, go to guiltyfeminist.com and look under live shows and you will see it. Or Bohm Presents, B-O-H-M Presents. We want you there. We love you. That's it for my conversation with Deborah Francis-White. As you just heard, Deborah is in Australia for the Guilty Feminist Australian Tour. If you would like to grab tickets, you can head to guiltyfeminist.com. I know those tickets have moved fast and actually Adelaide and Perth performances have already happened, but Deborah will be in Canberra, Brisbane, Melbourne and Sydney over the coming week or two. Please make sure you don't miss out. Go fast, go fast and get those tickets. And also, don't go away because Bron is coming in for the weekend list. It is weekend list time. Bron is here and I am on the hunt for something to watch because those COVID cases are on the rise. I'm a little bit nervous and I'd like to stay at home for my fun. Have you got anything for me? If you need a big distraction, have you got on to the Stranger Things train yet? You know what? That train left the station and I wasn't on it. Am I too late? You're not too late. The new season has just come out. It's all out there. So you've got a lot to binge at the moment if you want to look for some, you know, a healthy sized TV show that has a few seasons out already. Uh, The new season is just as amazing as the last ones. If you're not, I won't do any spoilers for anyone that has watched it. But if you haven't watched it like Jam, you are going to want to get onto this train Go watch it there. It's lengthy episodes, but if you want something to really, you know, sink your teeth into, there's a lot there. Can you give me a vibe of what it's actually about? Like, I know it's got a bunch of, like, 80s and 90s nostalgia. Is it scary? It's not horror, but there is, like, horror... Uh, vibes to it I would say it's got um, an amazing cast it's fun to watch the kids grow like season to season and their personalities just develop yeah it's not scary but there is scary elements I will say that 
All right, I think I'm in. You have sold me. It is time to get moving on Stranger Things. I want to recommend a podcast that I came across a couple of weeks ago, Bron, and I've got like super addicted to it. It's a quiz show podcast, which is totally not my normal vibe, but it is so funny, so light and silly, and the hosts are so quick that I have become obsessed very quickly. It's called Pop Queers. It's hosted by Dee Mason and Gail Davidson. It's a weekly show. The questions are sort of like reasonably tough, but it tends to kind of be the recent news and things going on in the news cycle, a little bit of pop culture as well. And then the two guests that they have on to compete on the show also have a special subject, sort of a la hard quiz, where they go really deep into it. The show is also on Joy FM. um, So you can listen live if you want to, or if you're like me and would never ever listen to the radio live because you're not that organised, you can absolutely just download the podcast. I was just totally blown away by how good the two hosts are. They're so funny. They're just this legendary duo who bounce off one another absolutely seamlessly. I've been on the show when I had a bunch of fun and now I'm listening to their entire back catalogue. That sounds so fun. My next one is, this is a bit of a blast from the past. I am recommending something that is 22 years old. So please forgive me. But Looking for Ella Brandy has just come out on Netflix in the last few weeks. It's the first time I've ever seen it. I've heard about it. People have always talked about it. And Pia Miranda won the season of Survivor, which I really loved, um, who is the main actor in this film, obviously. People will know this movie, I would assume, but is just like nostalgic. And I grew up in a Mediterranean family as well. So very relatable content. She is from an Italian background, is struggling with um, racism that was happening in the nineties and early two thousands. And it's just, I don't know, it took me by surprise. It's so easy to watch and like nice nostalgic movie. I've got to look perfect, Nonna. I want it just like this one. I can make this exactly the same, Jesse. Exactly. I'm going to die if John Barton doesn't ask me to dance. Try not to make it too public and disgrace the family. I love that you have recommended this one, partly because when I was a kid looking for Ali Brandy was one of those real coming-of-age stories for me, as I think it was for a lot of um, young Australian girls in particular. Um, I want to jump off your recommendation, Bron, and recommend looking for Ali Brandy the stage show, which is on now at the Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne. It is a play written by Vidya Rajan, but it's based on the book by Melina Marchetta. And it kind of brings together this, you know, this classic novel and then groundbreaking film, but brings it back to a stage for the first time ever. I think that book really defined a generation of, of Aussie kids and it still resonates today because it's such a beautiful unpacking of identity and othering. Uh, and the way our country goes about thinking about those questions. I also love the fact it's a story of three generations of women. Uh, This stage adaptation is really, really well done. I had no idea how they were going to pull it off. They absolutely did. I understand it's going to be touring around the country. So if you're not Melbourne-based, it'll be coming to a theatre near you soon. So keep an eye out for Looking for Ali Brandy. 
That's it for the weekend briefing. It has been such a delight having your company. Thank you so much for being with us. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode of the briefing or the weekend briefing, then the best thing to do is to head to the app store right now, grab the listener app, and then you can search for us in there and subscribe. Otherwise, you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts, but give us a follow. So we are jumping into your feed every single weekday and also on Saturdays. While you're there, why not leave us a rating and a review? It will help other people to find the podcast. Tom Tilly and the team will be back on Monday morning, bright and early from 6am with the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.